travelers actually may be your most loyal in the sense that they're giving you the most percentage of their wallet. They tend to get ignored and you can't ignore them. They're too big and there's a lot of money there if you can even just get one or two more purchases from them. Been on my mind for 15 years, I reckon, in total, this problem. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ian Pringler. Welcome to the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty. This week, I'm joined by Joanne Ward, David Canty, David Feldman, and Alan Lias to discuss the age-old question of how to engage less frequent customers. So without further ado, let's get into the discussion. So to kick us off, please could you give us an introduction to yourselves and a quick summary of what experience you bring to this classic question. Joanne, can you kick us off? Yeah, okay, so I've um, been working in loyalty for over 20 years. I started at Air Canada, uh, where I was managing the Frequent Flyer Aeroplan program before it was spun off. Then I joined AMIA, uh, where I was working in global strategy, and now I'm uh, working as a consultant, uh, mainly focused on loyalty strategy and program design for different clients in travel, retail, and payment sectors. But what I really find is it, it seems to be a challenge in a lot of sectors. Everybody is trying to figure out what to do, whether it's, you know, a, an infrequent traveler or an infrequent purchaser, you know, and how can you engage them since you don't see them as often, obviously, as, as, as the people that are really, you know, your bread and butter uh, business. Perfect, perfect. Um, and uh, David Canty, we've got a long history in hotels and, and airlines, so you should be perfect for this. Yeah, uh, so David Canty, um Worked with Starwood Hotels and Resorts for 11 years, JetBlue for eight years, then left the, the travel industry and worked in retail for just over a year with AutoZone. Uh, re-entered the travel industry with IHG, ran their loyalty programs globally for four and a half years. And um, yeah, so everything that Joanne spoke about, about engaging with members and having them uh, spend more and stay more or fly more or spend more. Uh, all the above, um, essentially, uh, I've had my finger on the pulse of. Great. And Alan, Lyas, calling from Brighton, can you um, can you give us a bit of a summary? Yes. Hello, everybody. I'm Alan Lyas. Um, I've spent most of my career in financial services and travel, and, and most latter, I guess the last proper job I had before consulting was I was VP of loyalty and ancillaries for Virgin Atlantic for 12 years. And what's interesting about the Virgin Atlantic experience was it's a small airline, actually, with big aspirations, big brand, uh, and, a, and a real strategic um, priority to drive better outcomes for the business and profit from the loyalty program. And of course, with a very infrequent base of customers to start with, to try and deliver metrics that made a difference to the airline in terms of driving airline performance as well as to the program, I guess our, our whole strategy had to be around how do we engage with infrequence. Um, and certainly relatively infrequent to you know, the, the larger carriers, the flag carriers, for example. Um, and since Virgin Atlantic, I've been working for lots of companies looking, um, looking at these, these problems and other problems, whether they be airlines directly or I've, I'm currently working with Collinson Group, helping them figure out some stuff about mid-value customers. So, um, yeah, it's been on my mind for 15 years, I reckon, in total, this problem. <laughs> and uh, David, David Feldman. We've got very Davids today, so David Feldman. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Uh, so I'm a consultant as well, uh, mainly focusing on airline and hotel um, strategy. And uh, like Alan just mentioned, actually, it's uh, I found that the bulk of my work is always answering the question about how to get people to come back that second time. And um, it seems to be definitely a topic of interest lately. 
Perfect. So the first question is today, why should we care about less frequent flyers, less frequent customers? So, um, Joanne, can you take that first? You know, why should we really care? Sure. Well, I think one of the things, one of the important things to think about is like, if you look at a typical program, probably 80%, if not more, of members are infrequent, you know, either infrequent flyers or infrequent guests. You know, they may not be bringing in this, obviously, they're not bringing the same average revenue per member as, as your, your top members, but they're still a huge group. And they're also so influenced by price that it's really important to figure out, you know, what other things can the loyalty program provide to them that gives them some meaningful value or, you know, gives them some other benefits or, or, or differentiates the, the airline beyond just, you know, having, having the cheapest price out there. Because they are mainly, you know, leisure, leisure travelers uh, in most cases. Thanks, that's Jan. Um, Alan? I think, I mean, I just concur with what Jan said, which is, um, you know, the, 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 the answer to the why bother, I guess, for me, the big question is what we see in terms of the behaviour uh, of our customers, in particular the, the infrequence. I guess the a first question would be, well, how much other behaviour are they doing that may be relevant to our business? And how can we learn through the relationship we deliver, uh, we develop with them, you know, but it's the old hackneyed phrase of share of wallet, but what are they really doing and how much of their loyalty do we really have? So I think we, as we think about the infrequence, first of all, are they genuinely infrequent in terms of the services we offer? And if they are, then how do we create relevance to them by looking at other, other things they do in their lives and trying to in particular through partnerships, how do we try and make us more relevant to their day-to-day -day lives and potentially help them achieve their, their goals? In the end, most of us have the same goals. You know, we want better experiences, we want to travel, we want great value. And the, the great thing about these programs that we're all involved with and have been involved with many, many years is we have this sort of very shiny thing, which is the, the core travel offering, whether it be flying or staying that actually does demand uh, attention and if we can figure out ways of taking a holistic view of, of our customers to really help them achieve some goals that ideally are goals that we can help meet um, i think that that's part of the story so even if we can only grow them from flying for example if it's an airline from once every two years to twice every two years we may be able to help them through our partner activity to become serious collectors uh, and put a big portion of their total spend into program into our program via partners that help them achieve those goals. So there's a, there's a lot beneath the surface, I think. If it was purely they only fly once and pull full stop, don't want to engage with our partners, full stop. Uh, that's the long tail, and that's probably another <laughs> as a subject for another podcast. Yeah, yeah. And David, David Feldman. Yeah, look, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, when we look at the, um, you know, the research or our own experiences and the data we see with the programs, you know, the airlines and hotels that we work with, you know, what was really apparent is that the, you know, the vast majority of, I mean, if we take an airline flyers, for example, the vast majority of flyers, you know, don't fly multiple times a year, at least not with the same airline. So, um, you know, and they typically, you know, as has already, already been mentioned, go for the cheapest fare, perhaps, you know, just one one trip with one airline, one trip with another. So getting those flyers to fly a second time or a third time with your airline might not make them a top elite status member, 
but just the pool of available incremental revenue from your infrequent flyers uh, is massive. Whereas if you flip that around and look at your top tier flyers, you know, the reality is, is giving them more may just increase dilution. You may not be changing behavior. And also you may already be getting everything you can get from them if they're managed, uh, managed corporate travelers. And with hotels, I mean, the, the picture is similar, except it's probably a little bit more dire, where we see really, regardless of the chain or the market, you know, getting, uh, getting a hotel member to come back for a second stay um, would just, um, you know, that again, the biggest pool of potential incremental revenue. Yeah, and I'd say we call these loyalty schemes, but people in top tiers of these programs, you are highly, highly likely. I mean, I've seen an airline, I won't name it, but I've seen an airline where 95% of the people in the upper tiers have status with other airlines. So these people are very, very unloyal, really. And at the other end, you don't often have that problem where customers are, are, aren't flying as frequently. You've got much more chance of, as Alan says, grasping the share of wallet. The other thing I'd say is that we all know those people in the front of you in this in the supermarket or in front of you in a loyalty program where they say where they say do you have a card and they look in their wallet and they've got thousands of cards because lots of people will sign up to anything and they'll join every any program that's offered them the, the people that have all the programs it's very difficult to influence their behavior the people who are in very few programs and you know 97% of the population in the UK are in are in a program but some of them aren't very members of many um, you have a a great opportunity to influence those far more than the ones that are in lots of programs because actually they do care because they're just very selective and I think that's a great reason to to ask more often about are you a member of the program and I think airline Air, Air Miles Canada once once worked out that they'd asked their customers millions if not billions of times have you got a card and the reason why programs do that is the more you ask the more likely you are to pick up people that are being selective I, yeah. I'd say that so yeah, yeah. One of, yeah. one of the things I, I would say to, to that, Ian, and certainly at JetBlue, my experience was that we were an airline of, of infrequent travelers. We, were start, we started as a, a, a leisure carrier, um, you know, flying to leisure destinations. And the infrequent travelers actually may be your most loyal in the sense that they're giving you the most percentage of their wallet. They may fly infrequently, but they may be flying you exclusively. And the other thing is when when I was looking to address that, I, I felt that the key to it really was to ensure that I could I could introduce uh, redemption earlier in the in the, the cycle. So by allowing members to get to redemption a lot quicker, now that may that might mean that you're you're actually allowing them to redeem into short haul or less attractive routes than they would ordinarily go, but the fact that you gave them a taste of that allowed them to feel like they were getting something back, and that to me actually did breed loyalty, and it did ensure that I I, I did attract them the next time that they were looking to to travel understanding that these people may travel once or twice a year. And I think I mean, that's, I, I, that's, that's something that you can't overlook. And I'd even add to that, that in, a lo- in an airline loyalty program, a high proportion of active collectors have never even collected on the airline. Um, and I think that's, you know, what, what a great advert for a brand which says, you know, up to 40 to 50% of your base have actually never transacted with you because that shows that uh, they want to transact in the future. I think, it, you know, you wouldn't get that from a retailer. Yeah, it's Absolutely true. Not. 
I mean, I've seen that. I mean, I mean that. You know, I think if you look at Aeroplan and the success of their co-brand card partnerships, you've got. I would say the majority of people that have are collecting with the card. They're not frequent flyers. They're very infrequent flyers, but it's a way for them to have a relationship with Air Canada and the Star Alliance Airlines, and that's who they're going to think of first when they're planning a vacation. And I guess just one other thing one other thing to add that's not really travel-related, but another reason why I think it's important for brands to care about these less frequent purchasers is, in some cases, that's their whole customer base. I mean, if you look at you know sectors like durable goods or even like new cars... I mean, people are only buying these products maybe, t- you know, every two to five years. So they have, you know, they've got different challenges, but they've got to think about, well, how do I, can, you know, how can I build a relationship with people I only see that infrequently? And are there ways I can use, you know, data or I can market to them to try to keep some sort of engagement in between purchases? Yeah, it's important. I mean, and Jeremy Rabe said that this week in the loyalty conference where he was saying, you know, the jury's out on coalition programs at the moment, or they seem, they seem to be getting a bad rap. But actually, you know, there's really core evidence why customers should benefit from shopping at lots of different places. Of course there is. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a failure of, of, of our corporates that they don't, they, they find it difficult to play nicely together, but actually they, they would all benefit from playing nicely together. But why do we why do we feel like that has never been a success? Certainly in the United States, so you're seeing more and more people sign up for individual loyalty programs, whether they be retail programs like Kroger, CVS, and and even Best Buy and so forth. And then you're also seeing people sign up for fuel rewards and getting their their gas at at uh, lower rates. But when you actually offer them the opportunity to join one program where they have that as a collective, there seems to be a disengagement. So I'm wondering, is it we're not we're not positioning or selling it or marketing it correctly? Or is there a comfort level at the consumer at the consumer level that they're basically saying, you know, I actually like I like the fact that I've got individual balances and I can manage that. I think it's a bit of, of everything. I mean, if you look at the U.S. market, many have tried to launch coalitions. There was plenty. Plenty didn't last very long. And I think one of the challenges in that market is, one, a lot of the players or the retailers are more regional. You don't have as many, you know, national grocery chains or, you know, so it's unless you can really sign up everyday spend partners that are like across all the regions, it's harder to mm-hmm. build the, you know, to build the membership base and to keep people engaged. And I think part of their challenge was just the partners they had and the marketing and, and just it's it's not every market is is going to be successful for a coalition. I mean, I think I think actually just touching on the U.S. market, it's Alan here. I, it's, I think it's really interesting. I think the U.S. consumer and obviously speaking as a Brit, I know exactly what I'm talking about here. But from the experience <laughs> I've had of you know, effectively you know, looking after the flying club in the US and, and working with partners. The, the, the US consumers, apart, I think Joanna just said it hit the, hit the nail on the head in terms of the size of, the, of, the, of, the, of uh, the, the, the country, but also they really are very value focused. So if we, look at, if we look at the co-brand market, for example, in the UK, pretty much the fight for an airline co-brand, there's only two big players really for airline co-brand in the UK, Virgin Atlantic and BA, you're fighting to be top of wallet. 
you could have you could throw in American Express into the mix um, with their reward-based products, and I'm talking about the reward-focused customer. But you are fighting for top of wallet, and whoever wins that battle will see significantly higher spend uh, on credit card on co-brand credit card than than you would say on, a t- on an average bank card. However, you take the US, you know, even with a very strong co-brand airline co-brand, you're probably one of four or five cards in the wallet. And the U.S. consumer will compartmentalize that spend much more based on actually trying to secure the most value. I just think U.S. consumers are more savvy. So in answer to the question that David raised, it's getting the value right that would actually lead someone to to vest in one program and potentially one co-brand and, and one set of benef- uh, access tools to get to that product. But the value would have to be there. And, and that's, I guess, the biggest challenge. Well, let's let's move on to the next question, which is, you know, can you give an example of who does this best and how they've made it work? So, you know, this is the this is the old question we did last time. So if someone holds a gun to your head and says, give me the one single example where you've seen a brand who has absolutely engaged their less frequent customers. What would your answer be? Who would like to go first with that? David Feldman this time? Yeah, sure. You know what? what one we've seen recently, actually, is um, Hilton. Uh, I mean, Hilton has, you know, when we think about the you know the dominant U.S. Um, loyalty programs you know not just the airlines but you know obviously a lot of the major hotel chains headquartered in the U.S. When we think about the shift, I think over the last few years to over reward the top level of, of of member, the top spenders, the highest value customers, and now we have Hilton that's really opened up the utility of the currency at the bottom end with you know transfers to Hilton, uh, sorry transfers from Hilton to Amazon, family pooling, you know things like that. And it's a really, really interesting direction they've gone, which I think is opposite to the rest of the, uh, the zeitgeist that was kind of in the industry, where others were saying, hey, we've got to over-reward our top spenders at the expense of infrequent members. We don't really want to reward the infrequent members. And Hilton's basically said, you know what? No, we want to make it more accessible for the people that only have a low currency balance or only engage with us infrequently. Yeah, no, that's a good good, good example. Um, David Canty this time. Yeah, I you know I, I I could go down the JetBlue route because it's personal to me, and I think they have done a good job in that in that regard. I but I also go actually think Liv- you're going to go down the Liverpool route is where you're going to go down. We all know that, David. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? People are not are not less frequent uh, when it comes to um, following Liverpool Football Club. So, in fact, people are flocking to that. Um, but what I would say, uh, so you know. An, an airline that we haven't mentioned in any of our previous um, uh, podcasts is Southwest Airlines. And I think that they really have done an, an exceptional job in in really kind of competing against the big players in their market. And they absolutely own their customer base. Their customers are becoming more and more loyal. I travel um, myself through... A, a major hub in the United States that Southwest are now playing in. And I'm hearing more and more uh, from flyers that don't necessarily fly frequently, but are actually more impressed by the fact that they have uh, Southwest available to them. And I think it's a case of, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I remember when JetBlue kind of came out with an egalitarian model where it was, we don't treat anybody better than anybody else and blah, 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 blah. And Southwest still have the uh, pick your seat kind of 
model, which sometimes and in, in, in a lot of frequent travelers kind of frown on that. But the infrequent travelers don't particularly mind. They, they're just interested in getting a service that's reliable and, and are using it well. And I think, I think Southwest consistently deliver that well. And I think their marketing backs it up and their product backs up their marketing. So um, I, think, I think they definitely deserve to, to be given a little bit more credit in that space. Hmm. Dave and uh, Joanne, could you give an example? Sure. I, I have two, actually, that come to mind. I think the first one is, I think what's interesting when you look at some of the low-cost airlines or some of the ones where they're really mainly focused on leisure, uh, some of them are, are doing some interesting things with paid clubs or subscriptions. Like if you look at Volaris with the V Club or Frontier Discount Den, I love that Volaris you know, study. Yeah, yeah. Because it really, you know, it's different because it's just not, it's not, you know, a points program, but it's, it is engaging customers. It's giving them a reason to come back because they've paid something. So they want to get their money's worth of the benefits or the discounts that they are, they're eligible for. So I think that's an interesting example of how you can try to engage with, you know, some people that maybe only fly a couple of times a year. And then if I give, yeah, I, 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 I think it's interesting that you bring that up because we're hearing more and more about subscription based models and, do they appeal? And I'm wondering if there's there that's kind of a model that disappeared for a long time. And I'm wondering whether it's starting to make a re-entry into a, a new generation and, and, it's, and it's something that's resonating. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely think it is. I mean, I think the big, you know, sort of instigator of it is Amazon, obviously, with Prime. And you see from there, you know, especially in the retail space, there seems to be a lot of retailers looking at that because if, if, you, if you charge something to be part of a program, one, you can give people that are, have paid something some benefits that actually mean more to them than, you know, if you're trying to do everything and, and, and keep your costs down. So it's, it, it allows you to give people something they really want. And when you pay for something, it's just human nature, right? If you've paid $100 for a, an annual membership, well, you're going to want to make sure you get your money's worth. So you yeah, are going to try to... selecting Yeah, yeah. Um, the other, I was going to say the other example that came to mind, obviously, I, you know, I did a lot of work with Aeroplan, but I think if you look at the size of Air Canada as an airline and the success of the Aeroplan co-brand credit cards, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, they basically, between TD... And CIBC, I mean, I, uh, this I have some numbers from 2016, but it was like 10% of the national spend on credit cards is with those cards. So they are really, you know, they are people who take those cards and you have to pay a fee to have the card. But once they have it, they are, you know, a lot of people just put everything on those cards. They just, they, everything they, they buy, where they can use a credit card, they're using those cards. So they've been able to generate a lot of um, revenue from their partnerships, but it's also been a way too for infrequent flyers to really be able to to earn a lot of points, which they can then use to travel. That's a good example. It's a good example. And and uh, and Alan. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know you, you're talking about subscription, which is a, a, a big interest to me and something I've been working on for the last couple of years. And and co-brands, particularly annual co-brands with, with annual fees, are great examples as set out by Joanne. Then in terms of well, actually, it's a subscription-based product. 
that actually I, motivates me because I paid a fee to be a super collector of that currency. And because of the utility of the card gives utility to the program. In terms of the, the initial question, who's sort of doing a good job in relation to um, engaging with um, uh, less valuable customers or less frequent customers? I think, you know, maybe it's particular to the Australian market and the Canadian market and the UK market, but you take a, in the UK in particular, you take Tesco's. What Tesco's have figured out, um, they're, you know, they're famous for the, the amount of investment they've made in understanding data and the data at a customer level, at a SKU level. Um, and they're starting now to think through how do we take, if you like, retail behavior and now do we talk to our partners and try and figure out whether there's anything that we can use that we can mutually leverage to benefit both businesses. Um, you know, I suppose one of the first things, and Ian and I used to work together at Virgin Atlantic, one of the first things that, that Tesco realized is, fun, is their best customer in terms, their best customers, i.e. in terms of the spend in total and also the margin per product uh, that those customers bought were people that could turn their lab uh, card points into often frequent flyer miles or Pizza Express vouchers. And because they tended to, that tended to flag up slightly more mass affluent, better off customers. And actually though, going down further still, not only have Tesco started to use the data to try and really link partner micro data with bigger partnerships like with airlines, they, they have a, a sort of head start really on doing this given, given the infrastructure they have. So I think there's gonna be a lot more down the line. Of course, with things like GDPR, which make it a little bit harder, you, you need a trusted brand and consumers I think will start to vest more uh, in the brands they trust. And if those brands can pull together other brands they trust, uh, the power is potentially huge. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, so let's have examples where it's failed, okay? So can we give examples where we've seen it not work or, or brands not doing a really good job of it? I mean, we've mentioned plenty before. Does anyone else have any examples where it hasn't worked? Well, I think one one good example is when programs, I mean, they're, they're, they want to really make sure that they keep their breakage because they're depending on breakage for, you know, revenues and so on. But when they create expiry policies that are so strict that really anybody who's not a, a frequent purchaser is not going to get any value out of the program is to me one one big no-no. And you see, you know, and I think really what I'm talking about here is when there's date stamping, when, when they put some, a, you know, a, a set time when you can use your your points but it has nothing to do about whether you've had an activity or not so it's really it can be very onerous and it can be very I guess negative for people that you know could be earning at a slower pace uh, I think one example here I was just gonna say one example here was when air miles in Canada at we're going to implement I think it was a seven-year expiry and it just caused like a huge uproar in in the market I mean people were so mad and then they were just redeeming for useless stuff that they didn't really want because they didn't want to lose their, their points. And then in the end, they reversed it and they decided, no, they weren't going to do it. But all these people had redeemed for stuff they didn't want. So in the end, just this whole, you know, I just think it's really important to get your expiry policies right. Yeah, we talked about expiry the other day on the Loyalty Summit Review, and I think it's a big subject and probably worthy of a 
podcast in its own right. I think the example yeah. I, I would use um, is actually one I did work on, which was the launch of Avios in South Africa. And uh, I think this is a great example where I think there's two types of customers in the world. And I've, I've done research on this in many, many markets. And I think there are spenders and savers. I think there are people who will want instant gratification and something instant, which is spenders. And then there's people that want to save up for long-term reward and they're savers. And I think they they often behave completely differently in programs. And sometimes they behave differently in programs in their wallet. So sometimes you'll have a program where you'll collect because you want the, cu- the, the 10th cup of coffee back and others you'll collect because you want a flight to Mauritius. And um, I think that the problem with often with programs, and this is what happened in South Africa, is we had a program that was entirely for savers and wasn't for spenders. And I think you have to have you have to play on both of those sides of the brain and appeal to both of those sides of the coin. And I think this is often why coalitions don't work, because they don't balance that, because airlines don't like to have low value redemption because it hits breakage. Whereas, um, you know, having, whereas the other way is, is spender programs don't like to have long-term rewards because people say it takes too long to collect. And I think there's a yin and yang there. I mean, I think it's Alan here. I, I think um, what goes wrong is you sort of force your customers almost to become members and then don't have a strategy after that that recognises something about them and uses the, albeit limited data you have them to start with, to actually figure out what the best onboarding and engagement strategies going forward. So for example, I worked last year with a, an organization that offered a lower fare if you joined the club and you got, obviously you, they got a lot of memberships and issued points. And it, 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 I think you know, the, the, the key statistics were that after four years of operation, less than half of 1% of their members had enough points to make one low value redemption actually on that business. Another example would be airlines. I mean, airlines are really good now at getting people who are flying with them to, to especially leisure customers, to, to have a direct relationship. Even if that customer doesn't buy initially the airline seat through the airline, customers understand that by downloading the app, they're going to be able to self-serve. They're going to get information about how to get through the airport. They're going to have be able to download their boarding pass, check in. And actually, if you look then what happens, often then you are, it's virtually impossible to not become a member because you have to almost opt out. And then, so you've suddenly developed a load of members and great, but then you haven't thought through what you're going to do next with them. And you try and sell them a credit card maybe, you try and sell them another flight, but you tend to put them into a generic communication um, and don't identify, I guess, the source of acquisition effectively to then guide what you do next. And that's why airlines, you know, if the business phrase is revenues, vanity, profit is sanity, cash is king. In the loyalty word world, membership numbers is vanity. It's the actual activity, which is what we're all after. And that's the cash, if you like, of loyalty. That's good. And anyone else got any examples of bad behavior or bad, bad examples where it hasn't worked? I think one of the things to watch out is, I mean, I, we kind of touched on earlier about the difference between, you know, focusing on your, your top members versus your infrequent and whether you actually need a balance between the two. But I, I think that, you know, the adage that you should reward your higher spenders more than you reward your lower spenders, I mean, I think that is true. And I think that's true in every scenario. I think the difference between good and bad implementations 
is where on one hand you you give more rewards to your higher spenders although that doesn't necessarily mean more points or miles because it's the total calculus of benefits that go in there as well and then the other scenario is in order to reward your higher spenders you're taking away from your lower spenders or your infrequent your infrequent members and customers and i think we've seen lots of examples over the number of years where that probably hasn't been the best strategy you know anything from um, rewarding so few frequent fire miles to um, discount economy purchases that they just don't find the earning velocity in the program compelling at all to even join to even programs like Qantas where you know they used to have a very good long-term loyalty bonus that you could accrue over a number of years if you were a once or twice a year flyer to one that reset every year so basically your once or twice a year flyer unless you're engaging in the wider partner network the program itself doesn't necessarily have as much relevance for you. And I think that those examples represent lost opportunities. Yeah, and I think if you look at profit, I think we've probably been kidding ourselves on the measuring profitability in loyalty programs for a long time. I think we're over-awarding the, the top end who are least loyal and under-awarding the bottom end who are potentially loyal. And actually, there's money to be made. You know, We're not measuring all the benefits because there's money to be made out of breakage down there. I just think we're, we're not quite getting, we're not really being honest with ourselves with measuring the true performance of programs. Okay, so the last piece, I'd like each of us to give two pieces of advice of how to engage less frequent buyers. Who would like to go first? Joanna, would you like to kick us off? Okay. I'd say the first one is understand who they are and, and what's driving them. Because if you don't understand enough about them, and it sort of builds on some of the points to just mention, like, they tend to get ignored and you can't ignore them. They're too big and there's a lot of money there if you can even just get one or two more purchases from them. So I think that's the first one is make sure you understand them and use whatever data you have. And the second is te test and learn. You know, how many programs are trying to test and learn with inactives or even expired members to see what, what, what it takes to, to reactivate them? Thanks, Jana. David Canty? You know, Joanne mentioned data there. I do think that we need to start leveraging data a lot more. We have it. We need to start using it and really do, uh, using it in a way that's relevant um, and it connects. So that's number one. And number two, I would say be brave. You know, we need to actually start taking risks. Start, start looking at things that uh, are a little bit outside the box that aren't traditional uh, and start, you know, really engaging with, a different type of customer because I think that's going to be that's going to be the thing that will sustain you over time and unless you're brave enough to take risks and say look I'm actually going to evolve my program because I'm looking at the longer term I think that's that's I would say be brave thanks David uh, David Feldman I think that the having a compelling earning velocity for all your, you know, all your customer base is really, really important. I think um, what David said earlier is 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 a hundred percent. You know, people whether they have shorter attention spans or not than previously, you know, or maybe they're hyper aware now than they were before. But if people don't think that the reward goal is within reach, they're just not going to engage. I mean, there's too many options for them, and there's no way your program is going to stand out amongst the crowd. And then the second thing is having having a compelling reward proposition because you're not going to drive changes in behavior um, if people don't feel they're actually going to get some sort of um, value from the reward. Okay, and uh, David and Alan? Yeah, I, I concur with everything everybody said. I think for me, two things. One, 
as we think about the customers that want to have, and to David's point, that want to have a relationship with us for life, let's start to develop strategies that think about every life stage and actually having a journey that is meaningful um, from, from one of a horrible phrase, cradle to grave. And secondly, especially for infrequent customers who need to leverage every penny of, of I suppose, equity they have in terms of what is attractive to them to programs. In other words, their spend, be everywhere where your customers want to be from an earning perspective. And, and whether that's, and whether that's, that's gonna be relevant for people that are super infrequent, potentially for people that, are high frequent, that have high frequency and high value, have a partner network that is where our members are um, and um, is easy to access. Well, I, I, the two I would add is, is we, I did a load of research on this a number of years ago and just about how we communicate to the less frequent buyer. And, um, and I think it's about clear communication. So, and I give you the example that if you want to engage with them, show them the goal. Travel people, it's the hammock on the beach. Give them the hammock on the beach, that's what they want. But then tell them how it works. So you collect at these different places. They then think, I'm never going to get there. So you need to say, show them it's attainable and give them an easy next step. So those four things, I used to look at everything that passed my desk, I'd say, show them the goal, tell them how it works, show them it's attainable, give them an easy next step. And at that mantra made it much clearer to communicate with these customers. The second thing is, is I think we are guilty of, of, to Alan's point, is most loyalty programs these days have the key brands in their mechanic. So within Tesco, within the Avios program today, within, within BA Executive Club, customers can collect at Tesco, the biggest brand in the UK, and M&S, probably the most, the, the, the most iconic brand for certainly that target market. Yet you try and find it on the homepage. On the homepage, it's about travel, it's about flying, it's about, and this is on the blue, the blue tier homepage, it's about travel, it's about car hire, it's about hotels. When I was at EDF Energy, people would come to me and say, I want to sell showers, I want to sell, I want to sell wiring, I want to sell this and that. I said, no, 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 you don't. You want to get them into Sainsbury's collecting and you want to get into BP collecting. Because once they're into those two things, they will be engaged and they will look at the other things and they will shop the shop. But they won't do it unless you get them on it in the first place. Well, that's just about all we've got time for this week. So thank you very much to my guests who are Joanne Ward, David Canty, Alan Lias, David Fellman. We're really sport for having such fantastic guests on this podcast. So thank you very much for your time and effort. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share or comment and we'll look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>